You're listening to the Surgeons of Horror podcast. Hello, welcome to another Surgeons of Horror podcast. I'm your lead surgeon and host for the episode, Saul Muerte. And the choice of uh, subject that we're going to dissect and discuss this time around is celebrating 50 years since its initial release this year. And that is the film by Mario Bava called A Bay of Blood. Some people may know it more from its other title, Twitch of the Death Nerve, which to me is still such a brilliant, brilliant name for a film. I absolutely adore it. Uh, it has gone under other names as well. It's gone under the name Carnage at one point and also Bloodbath. And predominantly it's, um, it's an Italian giallo slasher film. It came out in 1971. And more so towards, I guess, the end of Mario Bava's career. Those that aren't familiar with his work um, may be aware of the film Black Sunday or Black Sabbath. And also, uh, um, he came out with with another film, uh, which was uh, sort of a bit of a play on the pit and the pendulum. Um, I can't remember what year that came out, actually. And that film was called, he says as he can't remember it, Said, uh, and that film was called The Whip and the Body and uh, another big one of his was called Blood and Black Lace as well so he's, he's had a lot of stuff mainly around that kind of 60s period is, was his vibe I think when he was really hitting his stride so in order to dissect and discuss this film though we uh, I need to have an offsider in order to chat through this thing otherwise it's very kind of a one-way traffic kind of point of view I could be spouting stuff and go down many tangents so I need somebody there to rein me back in and uh, make sure we're kind of keeping on topic and the uh, the podcaster alongside me of choice this episode is uh, Oscar Jack welcome on board Oscar Thanks for having me, Saul. I'm here to to dab uh, the sweat from uh, from your brow as as uh, as we enter the thirtieth hour of surgery. Yeah, yeah, just kind of wipe down the brow. And, like, <laughs> I'm I'm picturing like uh, James Brown or somebody like you know, like I'm fainting <laughs> off the screen and oh, I'm back, I'm back. Get on up, get on up now. Um, yeah, so. <laughs> you can tell it's a, it's going to be a strange podcast one, I think. Uh, I, I should just add, actually, the, uh, mm-hmm. the, the the Italian title for this, and I'm going to try and pronounce this if I can, um, was Ecolegia del Dalito, um, which basically I think translates as Ecology of Crime, if my Italian serves me correct. Uh, now, this, this is an interesting one. Before we kind of get into the nuts and bolts of this, I have a confession, like I hadn't actually seen this one before and, and I feel like that's resonated a, a few times uh, or has come up a few times this year, which is a bonus for me because I, I love kind of uh, trying to delve into these these gems. I've, I've, I've caught a lot of Barber's work, but this was one of those ones that just kind of slipped through the cracks a little bit and I never, never got it. And um, thankfully got hold of a, a Blu-ray copy this year and, and that was my kind of excuse to kind of dive into it and have us chat around it and I have a little discussion around the, the film itself. So I watched it for the first time literally like a, a couple of days back in, uh, in the lead up to the record. And yourself, Oscar, are you uh, new to this film? Are you familiar with it, or where do you land? Just so the listeners can I, have an I idea. I am fresh, uh, fresh as anything for this one. I have dipped into Jallo a little bit in the past, uh, but 
generally it's it's been kind of later yeah. uh, kind of more more late 70s and early 70s particularly the argento stuff yeah the argento, um, that's sure for sure and so I, I was i was kind of peripherally aware of this film in the last few years but i finished watching it uh, earlier today yeah uh, so i'm super i'm super fresh. super fresh super fresh so you may even steer me a bit more correctly because let's face it it's not <laughs> we'll the <see>. easiest <laughs> it's not the easiest of plot lines to pick apart um, which uh, which those that are familiar with the film will surely identify with. And it's probably, if anything, is the weakest component of this film, I would have said. Yes. Uh, it's, well, uh, I, and I just want to kind of put a note in uh, before we start speaking on kind of uh, yeah. like an observation that I, and kind of a reflection I had during this time, is that with Giallo, such a common facet of Jallo is that the uh, the plot is usually almost incomprehensible and yeah. incredibly baffling, but the visual storytelling is always crystal clear. Yeah, it, it, you see, you know, whenever there is a weapon that is pulled, that is all you see. Yes, you see yes. eyes, you see watching. You you always know kind of what is generally happening happening yeah. in a scene in terms of action. That's yeah. always kind of the, I think the real. I think that's why it is such like a um, kind of powerful genre, and why why it is has holds that cult status. Is that there are those of us who are like, yeah, the plot's not important, uh, but look at yeah. those, you know, look at those kills. Yeah, I, I, and that's the thing. It's 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 pulp fiction in a sense, kind of made into film. Uh, and yeah, I, I meant literally. Yeah, it's, Giallo is is the you know Italian for yellow, which exactly. is what those little pulpy novels were printed on. Exactly right, exactly right. And so they, when you play with that idea and get these Italian creative film directors like Barber, like Argento, like Fulci, who uh, really kind of played with that genre and. It's, I, 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 adore, I adore this genre because to me, uh, the visual spectral, it's almost oozing off the screen when they do it right. And, and, I, and I, th I think it's an amazing kind of uh, genre and it's, I, I happily delve into it. I, not so long ago, watched um, The Cat and Nine Tales, uh, which was a, a Dario Argento film. And it's um, it was one of his early ones from memory, uh, and it's also celebrating 50 years this year. And I've got a uh, an article kind of firing up, which may have already um, be up online by the time this this podcast is out there and live. We'll see. But I um, I found equally that the plot line for that one was a little bit convoluted and hard to digest. I don't know if you're familiar with that film, but it's. Um, but again, visually, visually, kind of some amazing moments in that film, uh, and the tension is something I really want to add to. Like the tension just amplifies, and it's almost like we're being pushed down this very narrow corridor, and uh, to a, to the pointy end of of the of the of the film, you know, where uh, where everything kind of unravels or or you know concludes in some kind of very elaborate way. So. And this, and this coming back to a Bay of Blood is no exception. <clears throat> Excuse me. So, uh, yeah. So look, I uh, I did want to uh, have a little kind of quick kind of look at where this film sits, a bit of background to it, 
as but before we kind of start dissecting and when we do dissect it that's probably when we'll kind of deviate and, and mention those kind of big moments because it's probably the most influential horror film ever and it's because and i mean influential in the sense that the imagery that's on display has been used to the nth degree in many ways shapes or form friday the 13th is probably the most notable one i think it was part two in particular where it uses uh, a couple of similar death scenes in their film actually <clears throat> which they adamantly deny uh, and claim they had no knowledge of this film before the film yeah, Friday the 13th Part 2 went out. So look, I, I am casting assertions admittedly and they may well be completely correct but you cannot deny the fact that there are some curious similarities going on. Namely though is the uh, the spear through the couple having sex scene in the, uh, that happens in Friday the 13th Part 2 and there's also a scene where a victim gets uh, planted in the head by uh, a weapon which is embedded in his forehead and there's also a character in a wheelchair as well all of which happens in these movies so take what you will from that and uh, <laughs> and tell me if they didn't uh, yeah get get inspired there's nothing wrong with saying you're inspired by another film because they do it in a different way uh, and they do it really well the, the effects are really good in both films so the other thing I was going to add to is that according to this, uh, in about 2005, uh, in total film, they actually named Bay of Love one of the 50 greatest horror films of all time. Bold statement, and I will probably ask that question to you at the end of our discussion to see if that is merited or not. So, a couple of things there, as I said. So, uh, yeah, and we're discussing it because it's um, its 50th anniversary. It came out around uh, September time, uh, released in Italy. Uh, well, that was the place that it was created. And any other things I should probably add to that? Probably not. Probably better to kind of start dissecting this one, I think. And if there's anything I've forgotten, I'll come back to it along the way. Okay, so. Ah, the music is something else as well. That's something that I probably should have mentioned. That there isn't. I don't. I was trying to look up if they had any particular mention, and if I do see something as I'm recording and having a little look, I, I will try and find it along the way. But I mention it because uh, I find the music is quite synonymous with the genre too. It's uh, it's quite iconic, and it's usually a bit um, almost a bit kind of funk, kind of uh, a little bit kind of. Oh, what I'm trying to say, it played well, particularly the 70s as well. It had it lent, lent itself to that kind of funk kind of rhythm in the music scene, anyway, that was coming through the four. And that often oozes, but obviously, with the kind of uh, palpitations that they play with with the beats and stuff. And we kind of hear that a little bit at the beginning of this film, which is why I mentioned it because when we get to the death scene itself, all of a sudden there's no music at all and it's deathly silence and I and apart from a little bit of the wind blowing through and I absolutely love that because I love it when filmmakers play with sound it's one of my favorite favorite things and an example more recently and this one 
I guess didn't go very down very well with the mainstream audience, but with um, and I forget which cycle of Star Wars film it was, but it was the one that Ryan Johnson directed, and I'm a huge fan of Ryan Johnson, and it's the scene where the uh, the starfighter uh, explodes, and there's silence, and I sat there in the cinema like aghast with joy because I I, I just love when as I said when cinematographers and filmmakers directors just play with audio in that fashion and i and as i said it didn't go down very well with with the mainstream audience but i i lapped that up love it absolutely love it yeah I, so i think it, it, it i think it made enough money that mainstream audiences were fine i think it's the vocal <clears throat> it's the passionate uh the, the passionate fan bases yeah yes. uh the incredible moment yeah it's absolutely oh, i love it's it it's one of those it's one of those elements of artistry that that you don't really see in mainstream massive Hollywood blockbuster films. Yeah. Uh, but it is it is stuff that you have seen on a smaller scale <laughs> yeah. with, uh, uh, throughout film history. It's, it's yeah, that's right. you know, when you have uh, these directors making these little kind of movies on a shoestring. They they it's they can't just sit down and, and enjoy the kind of the machine of it all. They yeah have to have ideas otherwise why the hell are you making a movie <laughs> are you doing it? why are you, are you making a movie it? exactly yeah exactly all right so with all that in mind we you kind of know where i'm coming from with this stuff and i hope listeners do as well let's take a look at this film uh, with a plot narrative and start dissecting this we start off and it's in a remote mansion oh, it's beautiful uh, um, beautifully uh, the scenery for this and I actually read, and I, I, I haven't got it in front of me, but I, from memory off the top of my head, it's somewhere near Lazio where this was shot. And uh, there isn't a lot of water and there's not a lot of forest around the location it was. And this requires both. And so a lot of the shot that they did, he basically, Barber kind of bought um, some foliage and deliberately shot uh, through said foliage to make it look as uh, a little bit more denser. And he said, but somebody, I think it was the DOP kind of went, uh, well, he, he actually, Mario Barber actually shot this too. This is how cheap the movie is. He didn't have a DOP. And I think it was the producer that said, well, what are we going to do with this, especially in the forest? He said, I'll get you a forest, it's fine. And that's how he got around it, which I think is genius stuff. Just shows how, how good a director he was. Uh, to know the tricks of the trade. Okay, so we are set in uh, this Bayside mansion, and we're in. Uh, we meet a wheelchair-bound countess named Federica Donati, uh, and she. Uh, a lot of uh, ominous music is said playing in the background, and all of a sudden it goes very quiet and deathly still. She looks out of the window at one point, and and there's beautiful bits where this you get these POV shots from the the killers as well, kind of moving around and stuff. Like you get sense that she's being watched. As the cameras moving around, well, so, even yeah. before the the even before there's an element of, of mm. oh this is being watched, you you feel you get such a strong sense of how alone this woman is, like yeah. that which which plays such an important part into the story itself. It's like yeah, this woman is all alone in this big house. These big wide shots where you just kind of and then have a slight Dutch tilt where you just see her kind of slowly wheelchairing herself yeah, over. Yeah, yeah, I like I, I love that and the, and the uh, close up shots of her looking kind of. Uh, outwardly into the darkness and obviously not seeing anything there and um, and then all of a sudden uh, she's attacked by a guy called his name's Filippo um, 
and he is her husband which we kind of learn a little bit later i was shocked i was yeah i was uh, i meant the mere image of, of this woman being hung so kind of i use the word pathetically yeah because it's you know i mean yeah, she's just kind of hanging. It's it's her knees are a little bit off the only a little bit off the ground themselves, and her feet are struggling. The thing that truly shocked me though was when the camera peeled up, uh, and we saw the guy's face, and I was like, yes. "What? What? What?" <laughs> I knew that. I, yes, I know this is reveal. early in Jalo, but is this? I was expecting to not see the face <laughs> of the killer until the very end. Yeah. Um, but obviously, uh, I get corrected uh, because the killer is himself killed uh, yeah. almost immediately after killing his wife yeah, yeah uh, by someone right. who we do not see <laughs> yeah that's right that's right and i want to add too as well there are actually 13 deaths in this film and uh which is kind of a cool number uh, and that was kind of what they wanted to uh, kind of play with this idea as well so <clears throat> excuse me and so yes we get like we do get two immediate deaths but there's this great moment before the husband dies where he too then suddenly thinks he hears a noise and he goes wandering yes. off and he sees the gate kind of blowing open and shut and he's just kind of a wry smile to himself as though oh okay it's just the wind kind of you know and then he goes back and that's when we get him suddenly stabbed to death um next to his wife and he collapses down next to her and and bleeds to death essentially what's interesting though as well is um, going back to her death, I just want to mention too, because yeah, she, she he hangs her, and what I loved about this, this is a bit of a a nasty thing, but I love the fact that the wheelchair gets kicked away, and the reason I like that is because it is low down, like the noose is low down, which is a, an odd image in itself because we are so used to seeing it up high, but it's almost playing with the tantalizing playing with the fact that she's so close to actually being okay but because she physically cannot stand up because she's wheelchair bound she hasn't got the strength to lift herself up off the ground and therefore dies from hanging and the husband actually fakes a suicide note as well which is the other thing we should probably point out to kind of give across the illusion that she's killed herself and then as i said then he gets attacked what i found really weird at this point which i questioned but actually makes sense later on and i'll come to that is when after he's dead and we see him kind of underneath her essentially it's almost like this kind of uh, ironic uh, moment or a twist that he's below her status wise whether that was a conflict as well that he dies below her you know and uh, that's a symbology of of how they were in life because she definitely seems like if, especially with the flashbacks she definitely seems like the one that had the power of the relationship and but as we then cut to the the next shot it's a reverse shot of what we saw before with her kind of hanging there and it's kind of it's like rewound almost if that makes sense and it's panicked back and he's no longer there and at the time i was like that doesn't make any sense they've just and it was pretty clear and yes they do use this, the same shot but in reverse but it kind of makes sense a bit later on because what happens is, is that the body has his body has been removed so it kind of makes sense that that shot does stay as it is even though as i said it's this reverse shot okay so two two body counts already 
down and out and uh, an unknown assailant as you said is the is the culprit behind it and he's the corpse as I said is dragged to the bay upon investigation when the police find what they believe to be a suicide note written by the countess but Filippo's murder goes undiscovered because the body's been taken away we then cut to two different people there's a real estate real estate agent called Frank Ventura and his lover Laura who are plotting to take possession of the bay and this is the key thing the whole purpose of this film is about power and greed and wanting to have the land rights secured for themselves I almost see this film in hindsight as almost a bit like a horror version of it's a mad 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 world in the sense that yeah i see that yeah, <laughs> yeah. absolutely because it is it's a, it's a lot of people vying for the same prize and this prize in this case is said bay and mansion which is in this kind of big kind of property uh, with a lot of wealth behind it and we get we meet a lot of people on the way all biting vying for to get their hands on this on this property essentially okay so as i said we meet frank ventura and laura one of these people that are plotting to get their hands on this on this land and the countess has refused to sell her home and property to them which we get a bit more of, an, of a flashback a bit later on the couple then hatch a scheme with uh, filippo to murder his wife again this is all kind of told a little bit later on in flashback sequences but at this point uh, Ventura needs to go back and this is where we meet meet up with him he's going to go back to the bay and the mansion because he needs to get Filippo's signature on a set of legal documents and they have no idea however that Filippo himself has been killed at this point so we're introduced to this couple Ventura the real estate agent is going to go the Laura character seems a bit she is blonde, but she's coming across as a little bit blonde. We, in, in her character, at this stage, we actually do learn a bit later on that she has a bit of smarts about her. But at this point of introduction, we're led to believe other lot otherwise. Okay, so he goes off. Um, now, we then pick up this next batch of the sequence of the film, and we're following four local teenagers who hear about the news. I'm by Mr. Bit. Well, there is because we get our introduction uh, to the illegitimate son of oh, yes, uh, the of countess. Course. Yes, okay, and this beautiful our, moment. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Oh, it's it's. I mean, it was really at this point, and we haven't even been introduced to like the four young, no. you know, young people. It's at this point where I'm like, what is this? What is with like? There's what? this is already a lot of characters. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Uh, it's uh, it's uh, basically yeah the the, the illegitimate son uh, wearing a very nice uh, white s uh, sweater who's yeah. uh, playing around with a octopus yeah. doing some fishing uh, and uh, I believe it's Paul or Paulo um, who is uh, the neighbour uh, yeah. running around chasing insects <laughs> with a little net yes. and they get into a big kind of conversation and you kind of. Uh, uh, to, you know, the, find out uh, what their kind of situations are with uh, uh, basically both of them kind of feeling like 
potential uh, killers. Yes. Um, yes. Uh, and uh, the way they're talking and like, because because uh, what's very what's loaded. It? Yeah. So the, I think his name's Simon. He's the guy with the white yes. uh, polo neck jumper, and he, uh, yeah, he's he's saying a lot of things that seem a little bit kind of uh, sus, and. And we also get uh, the other guy called Paolo, or, or whatever his name is, the the, the insect yes, collector. Um, and he's just—he's got this real quirky energy to him. Like he's almost like skipping through the forest when we see it. And mm. um, they have this conversation, as you said. But at the same time, they are being watched by another couple yes. as well. Yes, that—that's um, the element that makes me say. What is what is happening? What how we've got four people, all of them, all of them feel like I mean, this <laughs> film feels like a game of Clue. <laughs> it does. You're so true. It's so true. Because everyone, everyone, and I think this is actually one of the things that makes it an incredibly strong Giallo film is yeah. that you you have so many incredibly good suspects. Yes. Um, and it's not a case of like, oh, it's it's definitely that person. Then yeah, you're like, yeah. I have no idea. There's so much stuff that's being thrown out. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And it's it's great. And I, we'll come to the uh, the uh, the couple in a minute. I think uh, mm. the, the woman's name's Renata, and mm. I, and off the top of my head, I can't remember the other guy's name, but I'm going to say Louis for the moment until I Albert Albert it's Albert um, mm. who uh, and we'll come to, we get a bit more of an introduction to him a bit later on but all we know at the moment is that they seem to be watching Simon and Paolo uh, from a from a fairly safe distance um, and and this is what I meant too there's and we can tell again and this is not meaning to be critical but you can tell uh, the low budget again of the filmmaking of this particular sequence because when we watch, so we we get the bit where we're introduced to pa- uh, Paolo and he's kind of skipping along through this kind of foresty bay area, and then when we get the point of view from Renata and Albert, it's the same image played again that we see. Like it's almost like because you can tell it's where the tree is, and he's almost gone back a bit and he's skipping around through through that same section again. Um, so yeah, ha- having to use some of the same shots uh, happens a fair bit in this film. Okay, so that all kind of happens. We get kind of four kind of curious people, as shall we say. Then we are introduced to the four teenagers that I was talking about before. And they've arrived at the bay because they've, they've heard about this murder. And they've come just as teenagers do to just be a bit silly, fall around, have a few drinks, and uh, get busy in some cases. Uh, in a murderous mansion. Why not? So they turn up and uh, so we get these kind of uh, the four people that turn up uh, at the bay. Uh, I should mention... Very strong... I I, I get uh, the... I had really strong like uh, uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre vibes uh, with these guys kind of wandering through like burnt out house like a kind of crusty pool it was it, it had a little bit of that kind of yeah um, well, which interesting enough kind of uh, Texas Chainsaw would happen would come three years after this so it's not that yeah. far off um, yeah so and um, entomologist was the word I was trying to think of for Paolo mm. by the way that's what he is so um, and he works just um, on the grounds this is these both Paolo and Simon both work on the grounds itself and live on the grounds. 
So which is why they have this vested interest of taking ownership of it as well. Sorry, jumping around a little bit. And and I think it's um, uh, Simon that actually at this at that point um, is the one that emphasised quite defense, defensively that it was a suicide um, to do with the Countess. And the Paolo character is quite sarcastic in his reply, going, yeah, yes, of course, it's suicide. Um, so that's where that insinuation of, like, well, do, do one of these people know more than they probably should? Okay, so coming to the teenagers, sorry, we get uh, Brunilda and Denise, so two girls, a guy called Duke and a guy called Robert. And, and they're there to just party and have fun, as I say, and they uh, break into the uh, bacon cottage to steal some liquor and smoke some dope. Now, while Denise and Duke retreat to the nearby bedroom to kind of get it on, uh, Robert makes a fire in the fireplace and Brunilda just goes skinny dipping, as you do. And while she's swimming, that's where she accidentally discovers the badly decomposed body of Filippo Donati floating underwater. Now, this bit is kind of interesting too because uh, you sound like you want to comment on this one. Um, shall I let you, let you leave this? Yeah. It is, I mean, uh, like immediately uh, when you have Brumhilda, who's the German and Denise, I think, is French, yes. to, you know, these two girls that these guys have, have picked up. You, When Brun, Brunhilde is down on the dock and she's undressing on the, on the dock itself and you have those... You have those Friday the Thirteenth shots yes. of, of like through the bushes, watching out onto the lake. Like it was, this was the moment where I was like, "Oh, whoa!" Like this feels completely peeled out from it. Yeah, uh, and she she's swimming around. Uh, you know, this is the first and uh, the only um, uh, the only that nudity that yeah, is in the right. film. That's right. Yeah, um, and and I think it's I think it's really great because it's. Uh, it's kind of the it's incredibly justified I mean she's yes. uh, Broomhilda is very much established as kind of a crazy German girl <laughs> yeah. who was like who's kind of like a bit too wild for either of the boys yes that's uh, right who decides to go in the freezing go for swim in the freezing water um, and so she's swimming around you know a, a, a foot gets caught on some rope and she kind of pulls at it and you just see this body under the water lifting up yeah and as it as she's she's kind of climbing out you just see him float to the top and just slowly that hand that, that hand. decomposed hand slowly slowly <laughs> touching her like upper thigh and it it is like it was horrific i was yeah. making no uh, i was making <laughs> noises in my seat it was it was very similar to, to the feeling I had watching Reanimator when the uh, oh, when the head yeah. is about to give head. Yes. This moment of like a dis- this disgusting thing slowly happening where you're like in a single shot. Yeah. It, it's yeah, yeah. taking its time. Yeah. It's great. I love it. I, and she I love it freaks too. Out. And it's this and, and quite rightfully too. Um, and it's it's the whole uh, what's so good about that shot is not only the horror component but the way it's played with the kind of sexual interplay. Uh, because it is a hand that looks as though, it, you know, if it was uh, alive, would almost be like it's about to caress her thigh. Uh, and it, this kind of, yeah, the sexual imagery that kind of comes with that and the horror of this thing being a corpse um, just amplifies that. It's, it's yeah, beautiful moment. Loved it. And so, yeah, so she obviously screams the house down, or in this case, the bay down. Um, 
she has time to get dressed um, as she then kind of runs uh, through the forest and then she's pursued at this point by again an unknown assailant um, and uh, wielding a large bill hook essentially which is like one of those kind of curved knife things um, and if you know what bill hooks are used for it may give the game away as, as to who the actual killer is at this stage Anyway, so the killer catches up to her and slashes her throat. And she, and this is what I loved about, what I love about this, uh, not just this particular scene, but I think this is the first of many deaths that we get, where the idea of, um, and the understanding of the twitch of the death nerve comes up. Because a lot of the deaths that happen, they have the dance macabre that happens which is this kind of dance of the death moment where the body spasms a little bit. And this is this happens here too. Like, you know, she clearly had her throat slit. Most of the time when we see those in slasher films, that's it, like it's done, like they're dead. But there is this little beat, uh, in a few, as I said, in a few of the killings where we have this kind of like little twitch of the death nerve happening, which I really like. And so we get uh, our first killing of, of the four kids, essentially. And then uh, we uh, We are introduced. To... Sorry, go on. Uh, I, I believe uh, during uh, all of the, the kind of the young teens escapades, we are introduced to Paolo's wife. Yes, we uh, are. And this, this particularly now, now is the, the moment when I'm kind of like tearing my hair out of at how many people and how many different archetypes and how many kind of classic slasher archetypes are all in the movie. Yeah. Um, because we, we meet this woman who is like a fortune teller tarot reader. Yeah. Um, who who is who is has like the dark makeup and the you know like she looks the part and she's pulling cards and feeling like it's uh, uh she's reading these omens of death and yes. i'm why i'm yeah i'm kind of howling i'm kind of howling at the moment that this is happening and even more so when she goes down and we realize that you know she comes down to uh, uh paulo's little uh etymology uh little uh, lab thing where he's pinning uh, insects yeah uh, and she she gives him this very ominous kind of uh foreboding uh prophecy and he is so sarcastic and yeah. so dismissive yes. and i i've loved it because it, <laughs> you never you never get that in horrors in, no. I mean, in the horrors of the 70s and 80s and even 90s like if someone has like a foreboding prophecy a, you know a, a, a kind of a harbinger of doom generally you don't have someone who has an intimate relationship with that person who says you're stupid Yes. Uh, shut up! Like it, it's it was just this little thing of like, yeah, this is truly a clue game. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Young young lovers, uh, real estate tycoon, uh, a, a fortune teller, <laughs> and her and her bug collecting husband. Yeah, uh, the, the you know the the children of the countess. Like it's 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 great. It's so, yeah, yeah. It's so yeah. fun. There's, it is. There's so much fun to be had with this too. And in that scene too, there's. I think it's in that scene too as well. There's yes. a close-up shot of uh, one of the insects turned up upside down, pinned to the, the board. And you know, again, the twitching of the body as it's like in its last throes of life. 
uh, and a, a precursor of what's to, to, to happen a bit later on as well. So, yeah, so thank you for letting me uh, remind you. I think her name's Anna as well. I was just trying to find that. Yeah, Anna um, is, the, is the wife's name. So, yeah, so we have the death of Brunilda and then we come back to the house where the other kids are and this is where uh, I think it's Robert um, he's the one that's kind of left on his own a little bit and he goes to open the front door because he hears a noise at the cottage and uh, that's when he's then whacked in the face with the same bill hook and that's the same shot that I said um, happened in Friday the 13th part two mm-hmm. and uh, that happens to the wheelchair guy uh, and uh, where he has a you know um, I think in well obviously in Jason's case it's a machete go to choice but in this case it's a bill hook to the face nice effect and yeah we see him kind of collapse down onto the ground and then we follow the rest of the sequence as a POV as he then goes up into where the couple are making out and he grabs a fisherman's spear and basically shoves it into the back of Denise and it goes through Denise and then through Duke impaling them both in bed while they're in the middle of sex and this is the best kill sequence when it comes to not the death thing but the sexual interplay stuff because the writhing that continues to go between the couple as they are in this death row if you had not got the spear seats spear jutting out from them would look like it's it's they are still in the act of making love and it's a great it's a great little moment beautiful yeah and as i said repeated in friday the 13th part two so <laughs> um hey yeah you're gonna you, you know uh, uh uh savini likes you know knows his stuff uh, well that that's you know. that's what i have trouble with right because he does so to kind of say that they didn't know about the movie i beg i beg to differ but you know look I, i'm not here to cast uh, character aspersions upon people allegedly allegedly like, so, so from, their, from their point of view they had wanted to up the ante of the original film obviously where kevin bacon has the spear coming out through the front of the neck so they their point of view was like what do we do that's similar but different and that was the whole the spear thing kind of came out of that which sure arguably that could be the case okay so for deaths in quite quick succession here so if we're looking at the kill count at this point we're up to six i believe at this point yep. uh, so as i said there's i'm pretty sure it's 13 let's just make sure i'm staying corrected with that as we as we plow through the next few bits so night then falls on the bay and this is where we pick up with renata properly and her husband albert so they were the couple we saw looking uh, through the binoculars at Paolo and Simon having their conversation. Now they're in some kind of like camper van. They uh, get into their car and they basically leave their daughter and uh, son in the camper van on their own. <laughs> and there's a few comments about like, should we believe in them? And yeah, like they're asleep, they'll be okay. Uh, and then being quite dismissive. Now this was one of the key key moments, key ideas that was percolating away when this script was first put down. It's like they like the idea of this couple who basically leave leave the kids and then go off and do this dark thing um, to then kind of come back home again um, and play around with that idea. So this is where this kind of lead couple 
comes comes along. That's it's clear from the get go that uh, Renata is the headstrong one of the two, and uh, Albert is a, a kind of a weak willed kind of you know does her bidding kind of thing. We also learn that Renata is Donati's estranged daughter, so she actually has a legitimate claim to uh, the land being being uh, the, the daughter. So they go off, uh, and this is where they then visit Pascari, uh, Paolo, and his wife Anna, the fortune teller. And they sit down and have tea, and this is where Anna slightly insinuates that the Countess's death was probably Renata's father's doing, and that Simon may be the one to inherit the property. At which point they question this, Simon being the fisherman guy, and that's when they find out that dum 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 he is her half brother and renata leaves with albert who tells him that simon will have to be disposed of because he will have a claim to the air or the the air the, the land too so again we're starting to get motive kind of playing around at this point renata and albert then meet up with simon to talk with him about the countess's death when they discover the badly decomposed body of Donati in Simon's boat. Simon claims to have only found the body floating in the bay and will inform the authorities. Uh, and there's this great shot with this squid or whatever it is, is just planted on the corpse's face. And um, and as, as it's even reach its tentacle is reaching out from underneath uh, underneath the, the sheet and almost in like a, an echoing of the moment of the corpse reaching out uh, for Broomhilda. It's, it's, yeah, it is nice. reaching out to their hand there, uh, which is a great little yeah. <laughs> moment. And yeah, they, when they rip it off, it's covered in these octopuses yeah. that are still squirm, that are still squirming around, squirming. giving, giving you know, the long dead uh, husband <laughs> yeah. kind of his own death twitching again. Yeah, yeah, it's great. I love it. This, the, 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 this playing around with this idea is, 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 is great. I love it. Uh, and so, yeah, and then Renata and Albert basically then uh, run uh, or flee at this point to stop at Ventura's cottage, hoping to meet with him. But, uh, so Ventura is uh, the uh, state agent, is that right? I'm just going to check that I'm right with that. Yeah, the estate agent guy, yeah, Ventura. So they go off to his, um, his cottage to meet up with him. And this is where they find out that it seems to be deserted. So Albert then walks away for a moment, of which point Ventura suddenly appears and he attempts to kill Renata. She runs into the bathroom where she discovers the four mutilated bodies of the teenagers that are piled up in there. Uh, and Renata then uh, gets the upper hand though, where she grabs a pair of scissors and then she stabs Ventura. This is all accidentally witnessed by Paolo, the bug collector guy, who then runs back to his house to call the police. Albert sees him running back, so he follows him there and basically strangles him to death. So uh, Albert having to kind of take the upper hand. So Albert is Renata's husband, just said. I know yes, there's a lot this, of characters this, to play. No, and yeah. this is where, this is the moment that it really starts like yeah. boggling the mind of like yeah. <laughs> uh, who who's killed who I honestly for yeah. a lot of these people I'm not sure who kills who. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, That's yeah. right. <laughs> so I do emphasize at this point that I didn't say uh, Ventura was dead at this point. 
because he's he isn't so with uh paolo being killed that's death number seven okay so then uh and by the hands of albert and this is when anna then um to, uh yes the wife the portraiture he is a commotion adventurer's cottage and she arrives um there to kind of find out what's going on and there's this great kind of stuff in the lead up to it where she keeps doing like these weird like uh she looks like I didn't notice it before, and it's, this is the uh, the play around with the imagery that's happening. But she she looks so eerie in these bit in the lead up to what essentially is, is going to be her death. But there's these like shots where like um, uh, a pathway with a little bit of shrubbery. Uh, she's got this huge kind of like uh, black kind of gown. So all we kind of see is her head. And this cloak and this is what i meant by it's a precursor of what we're about to see because all right we're about to say it, but she gets decapitated right so it's almost like she is walking around yes. as a headless figure she's walking around in these bushes like in the bushes and stuff as well i just ah oh. and like you know that in hindsight but in the lead up to it you don't but when you look back at it you just go oh that was that was just brilliant um, and that yeah. head, that that with the chop of that head is, I mean, pretty much every single death in this film got a reaction from me. Yeah, yeah. Uh, which is wonderful. I mean, when that, yeah. I kept on looking at like, yeah, taking a little step back on, Jesus. <laughs> um, it's really, it's really impressive. And yeah. it's not, and I wouldn't say, and none of it is gratuitous. Um, no, it's all it's it's all incredibly impactful. Yeah, um, and and particularly uh, has lasting power. I think. Yes. I think I think the special effects themselves are incredibly well done. Yeah, they uh, are. And then the 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 deaths themselves have real lasting impacts because of that twitching, because yeah. of staying on those moments of 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 those bodies that you know are still moving yeah yeah um, it's great it's not even a conscious it isn't even for a viewer it's not even a conscious thing really it's just no. this thing that that like when you reflect on it you're like whoa i kept on seeing it for longer like yeah. it was there for ages <laughs> yeah yeah that's right and this is really kind of playing with that imagery which is which is great and there's this great moment where just before anna gets killed too where she sat down next to i think it's like a broken pot and and she's kind of looking down at it and it's almost like she's resigned to the fact that she's about to die there like it's almost like she has this premonition or like that's how i like to view it that she has this moment of like this the pot the broken pot is a symbol of her death and so she looks around and sees her assailant we don't see who it is and the axe comes down slices her neck off we do learn later on that the person that killed her was renata so uh that's our eighth death which just happened so killed off and then uh, what happens there so so albert starts freaking out a little bit here he's kind of a bit you know like can't believe he's killed killed this innocent man that he's kind of been drawn to so he starts having a moment of crisis and he tries to persuade renata to let, let's just make a run for it let's just leave now but this point renata's got the 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 what's the expression they tell between uh no she's just she's she's amping up she she wants to get everything finished off she she can see that like they they've already dived in this is it they, they, they she's in, in for a penny that's she's right in for a penny and for a pound that's right that's it 
So, uh, so she basically says, Albert, right, she has no intention of giving up when she's so close to inheriting the bow. She also reminds Albert that they still have to kill Simon. So that's the Fisher guy. Okay, things get a bit more complicated. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> when Laura then shows up, remember her, the blonde girl from uh, very early on, Ventura's kind of secretary, who was also in allegiance with him about kind of trying to get hands on the base. So she turns up looking for Ventura. At this point, she stumbles into Simon's shack on the bay where he appears to threaten her with a machete this is where we then get all the flashback sequences there's a whole like a raft of stuff and we get the backstory of what uh, Anna and Ventura have been working on together in order to get their hands on the deed and uh, the deeds of agreement to get the property and this is what I meant to, uh, earlier when I said uh, in the in when we first meet her we get the illusion that she's one of these kind of dumb blonde girls but she's not she's actually got a lot of smarts to her there's a big kind of there's a moment where she realizes she's cornered and thankfully though there's a big pot of boiling water next to her of which she throws over simon but unfortunately it's not enough for her to kind of pry her way out of the shack and there's a struggle that ensues and this is when uh, simon Oh, we also get his confession too that he is the illegitimate son so he, that's the confirmation of his purpose and his agreement because there's some flashbacks of him as well working with uh, the husband uh, in an agreement to kill the countess and get get the land agreement as well so all this stuff kind of uh, lots of flashback moments as I said but Simon basically he uh, yeah he manages to kind of overpower Laura and uh, that's when he and especially when he finds out that uh, they're the ones that behind the murder of his mother essentially and he uh, he kills her too uh, with his bare hands strangling her so uh, death number nine I want to say at this point um, mm-hmm. I feel like I could be wrong losing I'm losing count no yep no bit. nine Nine, nine right. Okay, so then Simon then goes after both Renata and Albert, who are hiding out in the property. But then Albert turns the tables on Simon, coming out and then impaling him to a wall with the same fisherman's spear that Simon used to kill the two of the teens. And that's a great moment where he's impaled against this wall, and again, a bit of a twitch nerve stuff going on as well. Good death scene. Uh, then Simon uh, finally taken care of this is when Renata and Albert go in search for the Countess's house for the missing will which has the listings of beneficiaries so this is uh, sorry Simon's death was death 10 Um, but then Ventura who has at this stage we presumed was dead shows up and he attempts to kill them both but again, he is overpowered by Albert, who actually kills him for good. So death number 11. And at this point, it looks like Renata and her husband, Albert, have gotten away with everything because everybody's dead. Okay, big kill count, everybody's dead. So they, the next morning, with all the loose ends tied up, uh, and the, uh, they burn the will for the countess uh, the, of the countess as well so it means which at that point I think was everything was going to go to Simon so they kind of get rid of all of that evidence so as far as they're concerned everything is good they then uh, plan to return home uh, to wait for the news of her in- inheritance of the bay but there's an ironic twist at the very end 
where they're standing there by the car and uh, all of a sudden both of them are shot dead killed so death number 12 death number 13 and then it's revealed that their killer is none other than their son who is playing around with their gun and he shoots them dead down and he's uh, the little sister turns to her brother and says gee they're sure good at playing dead aren't they and at that point they both run out and skip over some uh, some stones by the water and we get our end scene of the film yes yes we certainly do <laughs> <laughs> yeah so a lot of convoluted twists along the way um and the message that maybe greed will not lead you to do anything good um no, no good will come out of it where this kind of lust for power or lust for land lust for money um and innocence will prevail uh so to speak so uh, what do you think of that ending though because that's kind of like it is a bit of a oh all right moment <laughs> I, I i think i both love it and hate it <laughs> right. i think i i i love i love the boldness of like it because it, it feels like it feels like a, it's i mean it, it's like a joke ending yes it's, it, is. It's, it really it's, is it's 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 like a punchline at the end um which kind of puts it, i think i it totally it, it, put, it puts the rest of the film kind of in in context yes uh and that and that the, the kind of the ridiculous amount of characters and the convoluted plot uh, like the, there's purpose to that it's like yes. yeah yes. no no we've got multiple killers running around everyone's kind of uh, uh flashing each other up uh but it's also a thing where i'm like i i i mean i could have i could have met the kid first you know like we <laughs> yeah. we, 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 we kind of see them a little bit i could have done with our scene with the kids yeah yeah um, <laughs> yeah, yeah um but i i think it's i think it's yeah no it was my last almost i re- reacted to it almost like one of the deaths themselves yes yeah um with with the twitching of it really kind of being the kids running off and running down the bay in this yeah. long extended moment of like what the what <laughs> what just happened what yeah. Ha- what <laughs> yeah yeah that's right so it's a really big big shock ending big shock ending and uh, yeah plays with that whole yeah the, the, yeah just everyone loses essentially there are no winners in this game um in this uh, in, in this game of clue as you said there are no winners <laughs> um interestingly like uh the uh, writer for this the screenwriter was Dardano uh, Sacchetti and he he actually wrote Cat of Nine Tales as well so again the reason why I mentioned that and he worked quite closely with Argento and he was the one that was uh basically uh, I think it was it may have been uh, he had a falling out with Argento at this point they had an argument and then this is where he then got persuaded to work with Barber for a giallo film um, and they kind of got along well which is why what happened and this is where they came up with the idea of like the idea of parents who go off to commit murder uh, to secure a better future for their children um, was one of the early concepts that was the whole purpose of them doing it and then the ironic spin on it being the fact that the children end up killing them um, despite all, all that they've been trying to do to kind of secure their future um, and 
interesting here this is my uh so Sachetti actually credits Barber with the idea of the two people being killed with a spear while making love um and he was the but he was the one that came up with the idea of, of uh, a woman being killed in her wheelchair which were probably like two of the most kind of iconic death sequences in there uh what else was i going to say with that too um but yeah there's a curious set of circumstances too because um i think uh it wasn't the it wasn't initially going to be uh i think they were playing around with the idea of it being called that will teach them to be bad um as which is a line spoken by one of the children earlier on in the scripts um however um there was a big argument again that came out with Barber and the production team which led to um someone being fired i forget who it was and sachetti ended up quit um because he uh, out of protest uh and this kind of left this project kind of abandoned but Barber was at a point where he owed a massive amount of back taxes and so he kind of needed the film to be complete because he needed to make make the money money back so that's why it kind of went ahead and that's why it was shot really cheaply too because uh had to be shot cheap and so that he could try and just get get as much money back as possible to make ends meet uh so i knew there was a couple of other things i was going to mention <laughs> there you go uh and we should probably mention that um Carlo Rimbaldi was the guy that was hired to provide the special makeup effects to create the deaths of Anna, Brunilda, Denise. Using a lot of um, wax effigies, essentially, of, uh, to kind of do with the throat and the back, which was constructed and rigged um, with bright coloured blood splitting out when, when they were killed off. Um, and the illusion of Bobby being stabbed in the face with the billhook was also achieved with a prop blade. Uh, which was swiftly pulled out of frame to hide the fact that it was sculpted to form uh, uh, the actor's face, essentially. So it was shaped in a way that would just sit on his face. Okay, so when it was released, um, yeah, so this is, um, had a pretty poorly, uh, poorly received release when it was released in Italian theatres. And it was only later on when uh, it was acquired for US distribution. And this was kind of like another year later, about 1972, uh, by Hallmark Releasing, which specialized in exploitation films. And it would then uh, go under its own English title at the time. And this was when uh, I want to say Hallmark had just done Mark of the Devil which went really well in the, in the theatres and this was meant to uh, serve, they picked this up, the rights for this, to serve as a bit of a follow-up from that film. And this was when there was also, um, uh, it then got re-released, I think, under the title Twitch of the Death Nerve at this point and got the R rating uh, attached to it. And it then just went gangbusters at the drive-ins and grindhouse kind of, you know, theatres that were, uh, uh, big at the time and it got um, a huge influence and notably uh, one of those was Wes Craven's The Last House on the Left uh, semi-inspired by the idea and if you think about that the idea of being in a lone cottage when intruders come in and having to kind of defend yourself in a very small space that kind of idea plays with that and that kind of makes sense but because of that um, it then Bay of Blood then kind of got re-released again uh, in the US a little later on 
um, and that's where the title Bay of Blood came around. But there was also Last House on the Left Part 2 got played around too, as well as a, uh, this curious connection with the two, which I find quite interesting. Um, a lot of critics at the time were quite disgusted with the way that the, uh, the portrayal, and this is the usual kind of stuff that kind of comes out with the exploitation kind of films. This is uh, a reaction of just, you know, aghastness to, to it all. One of the uh, naysayers was actually Christopher Lee, who came out and said, saying, uh, after seeing it, saying, um, he went to see it because he had worked, uh, because of uh, the whip and the body, uh, which Lee was actually had actually started, and he basically came out kind of really against the film, saying it was a terrible, terrible kind of movie. Uh, it did pick up uh, Best Makeup and Special Effects Award, though, uh, at the, with a special mention award at the uh, Stiges Film Festival in 1971. So it was recognised for the effects that were on on show, and since it's kind of come out obviously it's picked up legacy status um, and people have recognized it for what it was this kind of early hallmark of the slasher film genre essentially and a lot of the stuff that we've discussed has come into effect with a lot of films along the way we mentioned friday the 13th but even films like scream and i know what you did last summer and urban legend and those kind of films that came out in that kind of mid 90s lay a lot of weight to and recognition of what barber created in this uh, particularly screen when you think about the, that whole kind of house the, uh, the end the very first one the house where people are getting killed off left right and center it's it's max of that and and that wouldn't be surprising because Wes Craven would as we know with Scream was a big nod to the slasher film genre and would no doubt be fully aware that that's what he was kind of referencing in, in his first film and it, as I said it's been kind of widely recognized ever since and a lot of people tip it as one of their favorite uh, favorite movies uh, in the horror genre like it got uh, admittedly number 94 but in IndieWire's top 100 greatest horror movies of all time it, it, it hit that mark it was in, in there amongst a, a bunch of others uh, and despite the fact that it's probably the most kind of known Barber film despite uh, other films that preceded it that he's been more critically acclaimed for so with all that kind of me spouting around and stuff where does that land today for us as the surgeons what was your immediate reaction to this movie when you first watched it i think i i, I had quite a strong reaction for this film i think i really did pick up um the fact that it is a precursor and has been aped quite a lot uh by by those 80s slashes yeah um it, I mean, it is, it is that, uh, except for the fact that there are multiple killers uh, kind of running running around. Um, I think the fact that, that there was such a wide variety of characters and uh, character, and I would not really characters, more char just character archetypes, um, yes. which is which is fine um, because there is so many of them that if if they were really deeply fleshed out characters i the film would be like four hours long yeah um it's fine i'm happy with a bunch of like kind kind of awful people yes um all kind of killing each other and chasing each other around i was really struck it, the, the yeah. special effects in this film are fantastic yeah. i think the deaths are incredibly stylish and 
really effective. Um, I think the uh, there was genuine intrigue for me, um, and not in a case where you know sometimes you'll watch a, a slasher film or a, some kind of mystery film, and you're like, I don't know where this is going, mm-hmm. and that can sometimes because be because the film is incomprehensible as a whole, yeah. and you'll say, oh, I couldn't see where it's going. Whereas like it's fairly simple story, but I did genuinely enjoy the mystery of trying to figure out like who trying to guess who the killer of this is uh and then once it starts being revealed there is this absurd level uh in it of complexity uh where where you know halfway through everyone who's left is kind of kill uh, are killers themselves yeah yeah that's right Um, that's right i think it's i i yeah i I I really enjoyed this. I think yeah. this is a really this is this is maybe one of my favorite giallos that I've watched. I, I agree. Um, I agree. Yeah, one hundred percent. It's 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 it just there's so much stuff playing around with it, with the imagery and the stylized way that the cinematography is used within this is is, is really really nicely put together. And uh, what I find really interesting too is like it's shy of the one hour and a half mark as well. Uh, it's and the fact that it packs 13 deaths into a very uh, short kind of time frame and you know and admittedly that's maybe like why we kind of sing a little bit with the with the plot line uh, a little bit that it, it's, it's a little bit of a struggle at times whereas maybe if it was beefed out a little bit with a bit of space but then would we have would we lose the energy of the piece by doing that you know that because that's kind of the beauty of this film is that it's just peppered the whole way through with these kind of beautiful moments um and these superfluous characters that we joyfully watch kind of get their comeuppance is is just great you know so like yeah i i, I thoroughly thoroughly recommend this film and i can't say that enough i think it's it's especially if you're a fan of, of slasher films and you want to see one of the early like precursors to that genre of what led, led the way for others to come. This is definitely, definitely one to watch out for. So having said that, I ask this all the time when we kind of just before we bow out, how do you actually think a modern cinema movie audience would take this film? Is it a little bit dated? Will they be able to connect with it? And would you recommend it? I think I think a modern audience would uh, think I would enjoy it. And I think initially, as a striking giallo that quickly descends into almost a great bad movie, which then re-justifies itself as doing it on purpose yes. and genuinely being impressed with being like, oh. I thought I was laughing at this movie because it was being stupid, but actually, this it knows exactly what it's doing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, which I think is it, 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 like that tone, that tonal kind of tightrope of it that it walks is, I think, the saving grace for it. Um, and and what could have just have easily been like a cult, you know, classic good gore but bad flick film uh, is actually uh, a couple rungs higher uh, for that. And I think yeah. I think a modern audience would would definitely enjoy this this is a fantastic movie night a uh, bunch of friends few beers like you know the story is 100%. not important 100 percent. yeah that's yeah. where it thrives yeah and I, and that's definitely where if i ever get anything off the ground that's this is definitely going to be front and center of something i would definitely play um it just it's, it's just a great it's a great late night festival piece um it's uh, or alternatively as you said 
uh, stuck at home with a bunch of mates. Let's just stick something on, have a few beers and chat, and you know, and and just dig the vibes that this this that comes with this and the craziness of the moments that come out of it too. Uh, okay, cool. Um, any other last kind of uh, food for thought before we uh, we bow out for the podcast, Oscar? Uh, I would say uh, the film is a little bit like a magic trick in terms of uh, kind of the amount of slashes that I've seen um, that come after it. Watching this yeah. and seeing how early it was, it really does, it feels like a magic trick. Yeah. You think, oh, yeah. whoa, this is genuinely impressive um, that that they did it this early and this well, and yep. the fact that that no, I I haven't really seen a slasher film that was made in the wake of it that played with the same pieces um ever ever again yeah um yeah where, where is our it's a mad 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 world slasher movie <laughs> it needs in to the happen. 80s or the 90s <laughs> yeah. absolutely it needs you to need happen. to have a yeah, massive awesome. body count with, yeah. with, with with you know with the slasher rules going on that'd be cool that'd be so cool it needs to happen mm. We're saying it here. We're saying it. We're now. working out. We're working out. Yeah, That's good. That's good. There, there you go. <laughs> All right. And I think on that note, uh, it's time for us to bow out. So we uh, do uh, thank you for joining us and listening to our discussions of Mario Barber's A Bay of Blood, as I said, released in 1971 and celebrating 50 years since its release. 50 years and it still looks damn good, I have to add. So with further ado just let us know if you have caught this film before what your thoughts are of the film have you just watched it recently is it one of your firm favorites or do you think it's just a steaming pile of turd we don't care we just love to hear from you and let you know our, uh, let us know your thoughts on it and uh, do hit us up and let us know what it is you think of the film on our usual social media platforms facebook twitter youtube and instagram and let us know what do you think of it? Uh, until then, I'm your lead surgeon host for the podcast. My name is Saul Murte. I do thank you for listening. And I do want to extend my thanks once more to my colleague, Oscar Jack, for joining me on this one. Absolute pleasure. You've been listening to a Surgeons of Horror podcast. For more discussions or podcasts, head over to surgeonsofhorror.com or head over to our Facebook and Twitter sites for the latest news and updates.